Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a panel discussion from the IO360 2020 Summit, led by Dr. Priti Hedge of Foundation Medicine, on the topic of next-generation bispecifics in solid tumors. Dr. Hedge was joined by Dr. Julie Bayliss of Amgen, Dr. Demetrius Skokas of Regeneron, Dr. David Shire of Pfizer, and Dr. Pablo Umana of Roche. All right. Um, so we learned uh, about the platform development strategies at Regen, Amgen, and Roche. David, do you want to share what Pfizer is doing in this space? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's actually interesting looking at and Julian. I've had yeah. this discussion once before. Pfizer takes a somewhat agnostic approach, which I appreciate, which is basically, you know, what works is what works. Um, because, you know, multiple modalities, we have bite modalities, we have enhanced half-life. But what we realize at Pfizer is every antigen requires its own modality. And some antigens require a full-length antibody. Antigens require, you know, the, the bite format or a star format. And so... With Pfizer, we're taking both of those. Our BCMA is uh, more the star format, which is you know really based on the size of the protein that it targets to actually get the T cell, get the real engagement that you need. Where we've just entered clinic now with a full length antibody against uh, the best named antigen ever, Gucci Tusi. Uh, so that is our CRC-specific uh, target, which entered clinic, and that takes the larger format of a, a full-length antibody to get its targeting. And I think that's you know, really what I think is important for the field, is that you look for the molecule that gets you the activity. You look for a molecule that gets you the activity you want based on the target antigen? or Both. Because, uh-huh. you know, not all CD3 engages the same either, right? And so I think it's... You know, having a singular platform may put you down or it doesn't necessarily give you the best molecule. Do others think about that? Pablo. I, I think similar maybe to what Dimitris uh, showed, I, I think that um, uh, a key forward is, for solid tumors we're talking, is on uh, trying to combine the bispecific, the CD engagers mm-hmm. with uh, next generation co-stimulator molecules. Uh, I think that by doing those type of combinations, you can really uh, potentiate the T-cell, the redirected T-cell response. And uh, personally, I think that that has a better chance of improving the, um, the activity of, of, this, of these approaches rather than um, playing with the half-life of the molecule. Um, my, my, in our experience, really the, um, having a long circulatory half-life uh, is really what, what you need to uh, deliver um, antibodies to uh, solid tumors. But, uh, I think it's more finding ways to um, increase the specificity, uh, either some tricks for, for example, tumor microenvironmentation of the bispecifics or choosing very specific targets or by a special combination of signal one and signal two that is more tumor-specific, those kind of things, I think, are what can help us to to, to move forward in solid tumors. I, mean, I agree with you. And at the end, what Dan and you know, Carl was saying is we're playing a game. The game is trying to anticipate. 
what is the limitations of the existing treatments and how we actually make a difference in terms of bringing something new by having many shots on the goal, right? In words, you know, what I showed earlier is that, you know, CD3 by specifics, they show great efficacy in specific B-cell lymphomas, right, with the CD19, so the CD20 by CD3, so like over 90% response rates. However, in the tumor, in the solid tumor macro environment, it's completely different. So the heterogeneity of the tumor, the, the limitations in terms of immunosuppressive macro environment, Tregs, MDSCs, um, so their penetration. So therefore, for situations like that, tumor engine is one thing, uh, especially for in the case of CD3, but a case of costing by specifics, then you don't actually necessarily be as specific. You can be as broad as you want, as long as you have the proper molecular controls the, under which your costing by specific will work only under specific conditions in the right compartment. So in situations like that, so when you have the 4MBB or the CD28 by specifics, you can actually combine those situations, you know, specifics together with the CD3s or antibody-1s or other checkpoint inhibitors to enhance, basically to mimic what nature is doing by itself, just enable to overcome the limitations. So therefore, imagine you can overcome resistance by properly educating the T cells at the right compartment. CD28, we hope that we can generate more polyclonal type of responses by targeting naive patients or maybe central memory that you hope maybe a certain percentage, few type cell types can be tumor specific that you can actually expand, actually educate to go after uh, the tumor type. So therefore, I think many, having many shots on the goal to me is the most important kind of a way to tackle these type of issues. Um. You know, this is sort of a novel paradigm where you're developing two new molecular entities at the same time in, in instances like this, um, where you're trying to work out dosing for each, you're trying to work out safety of each, um, and you're trying to work out what does that combination dose need to be, which could potentially be different, um, and what is the combination density that could also potentially be different. Um, what your views are... What is the development paradigm here that needs to be taken into consideration when, when you have strategies like they're working with two potent molecules with really unknown uh, profiles in your first in human studies? I think you have to have the big picture. It's, it's great to dream, and it's great to dream big, but you have to do everything step up. In other words, and that's what I believe, where a clear communication between preclinical studies and clinical folks is extremely important. And I give you an example what you know we are doing in general is that the way we are trying to develop the CD28 by specifics based on the you know the, the catastrophic effect of the Tigenero CD28 bivalent antibody, a super agonist antibody, was that safety is first and then efficacy comes second, equally important but comes second. So therefore Purposely, we took 10 years. We wish we could have done it earlier, you know, sooner, but put the amount of time necessary, mm -hmm. independent of the cost, just because understanding is extremely important in order to go to the clinic. So therefore, two examples, CD28 specific antibodies, we preclinical evidence show that monotherapy, it shouldn't do much. So it's gonna be limited. 
that was quite informative for the clinicians the way we'll design the clinical trials. And then, based on in vitro sophisticated animal models, a part of it that I showed earlier, it should be well tolerated because we have enough molecular control in place to enable this molecule to work. So therefore, these two specific, uh, um, let's say, you know, these two uh, uh, of information were critical in order to more efficient in the clinical trial and had direct repercussions in order, for instance, in our prostate clinical trial, we're going to go with a short lead-in over the CD28 by specific to evaluate first, and then we're going to add the combination because we know that the monotherapy it shouldn't have any strong anti-tumor effect. Mm. So again, preclinical with clinical discussion has to be even more like loud, I would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. I think one of the questions is not only which combination, but how to test the combinations. And so the question is whether the preclinicals you have let you ask that question and whether it gives you, whether you can read out the right data that will inform that. You know, I'd just like to add on to that because I've got to give Regeneron a lot of credit yeah. on this one. Uh, I think you have to have faith more than anything. And because you have to give, I mean, Carl, I'll give you a lot of credit with this, is that you have to give it a chance to have its its day in the sunshine. And so if you don't have the faith to try it and to have these uh, strategies as you get to these early phase trials, uh, the problem with a lot of us in industry is we get we want that quick hit as much as we want that quick success. And you know, one of the reasons we're in this translational medicine with the bispecifics is really I'm not developing the bispecifics, but I'm helping to figure out how to use them. And if we don't give ourselves time to figure out if we can take this novel approach, which honestly is straight learning from immunology, basic immunology, and give it its chance to figure out if we can get it to work. Um, I'll just ask a question on target selection for bispecifics, given the amount of work that we have to do, unravel how to inform clinical benefit in solid tumors. Uh, target antigen selection is critically important. Um, in heme malignancies, we see that you know, most of the targets that we've identified are clonal, right? Every heme tumor cell expresses the target, and hence you see this great efficacy. Um, in solid tumors, we don't have that... Uh, um, that luxury. Um, how? So you're you're already sort of you know you need to high target expression. It potentially needs to be uniformly expressed across all tumor cells, or at least in a certain percentage of cells. How do you? And it has to be clean in every other organ. Uh, expression has to be pretty much not every other organ. How do you? Do you think that we're all going to be working on those same five to ten antigens that we've all identified? Um, how do do each of you? target antigen selection for solid tumors? I, I think the short answer is we are. <laughs> They're all working, working on the same. We're all, everybody well, how many BCMAs do we target. have? Well, I, even for solid tumors, I would say PSMA is a favorite target. Um, DLL3 is a favorite target. So. I mean, I got to give uh, Divya Martha, who uh, chose Gucci Tusi, opportunistic. Uh, that's the other thing. It's, it's opportunistic. It's a target that maybe you didn't expect. Because you know, we've talked a bit about where, where the target is expressed naturally on apical sides of membranes. And you know when tumors are tumors, they mess everything up. And so there's a situation where the Gucci target now is potentially accessible on the tumor where it is no, not accessible on the natural tissue, tissue distribution. We'll, of course, find out if that's true soon. 
But so it's either opportunistic or I feel you're doing very creative ways also. Yeah, I, I, I think there are, you know, we are trying multiple approaches, but clearly that's the specificity both for, for any kind of redirection, which is for solid tumors is, is the major obstacle, not only for medics, but also for CAR T cells. But again, it's, you know, keep looking using the latest uh, omics technologies uh, to try to find a specific new specific target, trying to exploit the intracellular protein with a TCR-like mm -hmm. specifics, right? Uh, they have their own problems uh, regarding the, how to assess particularly the safety, but, but um, that's, that's another way to specific targets. Then you have, the, as I mentioned, like what uh, both Regeneron and we are doing at Roche is the combination of uh, CD3 by specifics with uh, targeted co-stimulators, Regeneron with CD28, in Roche we're doing it with MBB. Um, and if you use a combination of different targets uh, for signal one and signal two, you can use that to enhance your, uh, your tumor specificity. Um, and there are a number of biotech companies now, I mean it's pretty early, but are working on um, tumor microenvironment activation. Uh, right, PH, uh, proteases, or, or, or um, the colleagues from Chugai, they have uh, mentioned this extracellular ATP and so on. So there are a number of microenvironment switches you could try to use to uh, increase the specificity of next generation molecules, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we all kind of using different or similar approaches for target discovery, which I think is an important aspect, and I think a lot of goes into that. But one of, to me, the most critical is that you may have, you may develop drugs against a specific target. Two different companies can develop, but the result may be still different. Mm -hmm. And the quality of the program does matter. Uh, the way that you can vision bypass limitations matters. And that's why I think investing in technology platforms can make a difference, because we all know there is a limited number of targets out there. And the majority of the targets that do express in normal tissues. So how are you going to bypass that? It's also an important, equally important questions of investing in driving or discovering a new target is how you can bypass the limitations for existing targets. And that's a, you know, an important aspect that I think we have to bring you know, on and discuss about it. Julie, um, you showed some really interesting data with your PSMA bite uh, in, in prostate cancer, and you showed reduction in PSA. Um, how quickly do you see that reduction in PSA, and is it sustained? Actually, the data that you saw some reduction in PSA, we are just starting clinical trials, actually one with PSMA CD28 together with Arundab81, mm -hmm. and right now we cannot disclose anything because, you know, we're mm -hmm. just these trials. Mm -hmm. So we're recruiting patients. We're those first couple of patients. And hopefully soon we're going to have data. But right mm -hmm. now we cannot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess one thing to add to that is in the 212 trial, the PSA responses were seen before the anti-tumor activity. So they're, they're seen earlier and they're seen at lower doses where you don't mm -hmm. see tumor activity. So it's back to the question of the pharmacodynamic nurse. How do you know your molecule is working? What do you need to make it work better? Um, and prostate cancer somewhat represents the KPC-like model. It tends to be in, you know, an immune desert with low immune infiltration. Yeah, and so it's interesting that you are seeing some biological signal of activity. In yeah, that. I think you're totally right. We all know that it's a, it's, it's a hard, it's a high bar, right? Let's put it this way. But we still saw that ANDA-PD-1 and the CDL4 saw some sort of, you know, activity there. So I think if you could build on that activity and just take it to the next level and expand that, I think we're going to be winners. It remains to be seen. I think both options are valid.
Mm-hmm. And we haven't really talked about more than double combinations, right? Correct. Yeah. So then you get into the whole question of can you test it preclinically, and then if you were to move a triple patient to the clinic, how would you do right. that? Maybe just to, to add to that, one thing that we have seen, as you know, we have um, uh, CEA-targeted uh, CD3 by specific, and we have already presented in, in public that um, in some of those MSS colorectal cancers, mm-hmm. uh, some of them are of a immune uh, or T-cell desert type. Right. Many of them are of T-cell excluded uh, type with a lot of stroma. Right. And... Um, we were able to see effective responses by resists in both types, and um, even more frequent than responses, we saw clear T-cell inflammation of the, of the cancer cells. So somehow, by specifics in solid tumors, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that the stroma, for example, or, or being a desert does not matter, but it's not an absolute fear. Right. You can, st- with a few T cells that are there, you can start working and building the reaction. And I think we believe, at least based on preclinical data, that you can do that even better if then you combine it with uh, with uh, co-stimulators. And another point, you don't know. I mean, we're all thinking primary tumors, but don't forget the metastatic sites, which is something else might be mm-hmm. in place in terms of immune response, T cell infiltration. David, um, since you know you mentioned that uh, in translational medicine, the idea is to really understand translatability of the preclinical biology in humans and utilize that information for decision making. I've been in this space for a few years, and I really do struggle with utilizing pharmacodynamic data for informing decisions. Um, how do you? How do? What what level of evidence do you need to say that a twofold increase in proliferating T cells is meaningful and that that should inform a dose? Or how do you guys view pharmacodynamic <laughs> evaluation to inform dosing, particularly when we're talking about these really complex combinations where we may not be able to dose, you know, to levels where you want to see activity, you have to make hard decisions. I think I used the word faith a little bit ago. Um, it's funny, the twofold. I get challenged by why did I write twofold? I'm like, because that's where CTLA4 and PD1 sort of got us over mm. that hump. And at the very least, I'd love to see that. Uh, but in the sense of our trials and the way to design this, we have ideas that preclinical models, and Dimitri and I were talking about this earlier, the proof in the pudding is when you the patients. So you have to design these trials in a way, really, the preclinical data has gotten you to a starting dose. And that's really all it's ever done. The the answer is you understand the biology that it's taught you, but once you get that starting dose, you have to be able to go further enough to evaluate, did you actually have activity versus efficacy? And that's where that twofold, that twofold might tell you you have activity. The PSMA drop, PSA drop tells you you probably have activity. But do you get your efficacy? And if you don't, why? And that's, I think, what we have to do as a field here is not just, especially with solid tumors. It's a little bit easier, in a sense, with the liquid tumors to say, okay, tumor's gone away. We can look for that. But the solid tumors, is it because that person's tumor Suddenly, upright. You know, if you got a PDL1, PD, uh, sorry, T cell activation, you're going to get PDL1. Did it upregulate PDL1? Is that the reason you had perfect activity but no efficacy? Can you block that? So you, it's designing these trials and giving yourself enough time to understand what that response was. Because taking that preclinical translatability, um, it's giving you advice mm-hmm. and guidance, but you have to evaluate what's actually happening in each patient during that trial. Is my feeling. 
on that. I hope that makes sense to most people in the room. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think actually, you know, whatever Ton Schumacher is doing, Lawrence Vogel is doing. Um, you know, they're developing a lot of like ex vivo type of analytical approaches in using human tumor samples, adding the actual antibody, evaluating the response of like, you know, transcription regulation, epigenetic profiling, and then combining these, you know, platforms and technologies and to our, the models that we have been developing as a community, I think it's going to be instrumental to be able to address this question. I think right now we cannot really address this question in depth. So. I think there is a lot of work to be done and a lot of like, you know, eliminate the fear in order to, you know, more understanding. I think we need to invest more in understanding what we're missing. I do want to open this up for questions. If folks in the audience have questions, I realize it's late in the evening and I don't want you guys to be sleeping. Um, go for it. Ilan. Uh, a lot, Sharon, I'm with the uh, National Cancer Institute. Uh, you know, one thing that occurred to me, actually, even during the, the discussion, um, the debate, I guess, uh, you know, that we just had, was that one potential advantage, I think, with bispecifics as opposed to cellular-based therapies is the uh, ability, really, to turn off the therapy. You can uh, maybe end an infusion, uh, uh, whereas when you have a living drug, so to speak, could end up in a little bit of um, uh, a, a conundrum, uh, you know, down the line, or end up with patients, for instance, that don't have the ability to produce B cells. Uh, in, in in the case of uh, CAR T cells uh, targeting CD19, um, has that come up as a safety potential um, uh, issue that has, um, uh, I guess, pushed us more in the bi-specific space? Or could you comment on that? I guess I'll give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a concern. I mean, that's one, you know, it depends if, I guess, if you're on Dan's side or Carl's side. Um, you know, if you're on Dan's side, sorry, Dan, um, you're going to say that's the best part about the, you know, the bites or the bispecifics. You know, we can tune take it away. But, you know, it's maybe a pipe dream because, you know, we still have the issues of CRS. We still have these concerns. I think it really is you just have to follow the data and see it's there. Because if, you, if every dose you get CRS, not, you're not going to have a drug no matter what. So I think, it's, I think the point is if you get the efficacy with it, you'll probably be happy on that. Yeah, but I, I think the other that is back to the preclinical data. I think now collectively we've evaluated more targets and we have a better understanding of what target expression is tolerated. And so you would preferentially pick targets that you believe to be safer based on your preclinical data, and you wouldn't worry about that necessarily as much. I mean, I mean the next of course, I think they can use, you know, CRISPR, they can use things that they can control this remotely, I'll say. Um, but uh, they're going to turn to Teslas, I guess. Uh, but I guess, you know, by specifics, yeah, that could be an obvious advantage, but I think you always have to go in. Whatever new technology you're moving forward, I think you can uh, go cautiously, um, you know, the first, and then you move forward with efficacy. I think that's what we are trying with uh, by specific. Uh, I guess, you know, working on CD28 maybe gave us a little bit more uh, advantage in terms of being cautiously proposing and moving forward. But I think, you know, I will do the same thing independently of the target because you gain knowledge and you're going into the clinic in a more educated fashion and I think it doesn't hurt. Because I think at the end, you might waste time 
in the preclinical level, but you're going to accelerate in the clinical uh, because you're educating your clinicians. You're going more over with more different different type of designs that you have done. And if you haven't done, uh, you didn't, you haven't invested the time, the resources, preclinical level. So I think that's an important factor. That's a fair how, question. How, how, do you, how do you do that? The way we yeah, the way we design first, as I mentioned earlier, is that we are uh, proposing a lean of the cost team antibody just to address uh, safety questions. Uh, and after that, um, depending on the study design, if it's three plus three or whatever is that design, is that after that you have the combination because you don't expect to 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 see to get any anti-tumor efficacy or very limited at least with a monotherapy, right? right. And, but the CD3 probably is already in phase two. I'm talking about the cost teams. The cost team will be phase one, but when you add a combination, that should be already, that therapy should already be approved? No. no. Meaning it can or it cannot, I mean, depending. But in, this, in our situation, it is approved. And then we can add an anti-PD-1 on top of it at the dose that for which has been approved. For, and, and then while you're escalating the dose of the costim, you have a fixed dose of your anti-PD-1. And then cautiously you, up, you, know, you increase the dose of your costim and you start evaluating the efficacy. And you know, PSA can be one of the ways that you can do it. We can incorporate many other ways to evaluate slash uh, efficacy of our drug. So, In our case, we are planning to start combinations of, of the, both agents are still investigation. And, um, but, um, and again, if, if your um, co-stimulator, co-stimulatory agonist can uh, uh, work in some tumors where you may have some level of endogenous immunity, then you can start testing that in monotherapy. That's what we have done, for example, with our uh, FAP targeted for 1BB agonist. Um, if uh, otherwise, for example, for our CD19 targeted for 1BB agonist, uh, we started combination with um, Right away from the phase one, we started with a combination with Gasiva first, uh, because it, for one BB, also stimulates natural killer cells uh, before switching to the combination with the CD20, CD3. Hi, um, Raluca Verona Jansen. Um, I guess, um, you know, we had a lot of themes about some of the combination approaches in the clinic, but we haven't really uh, heard any, too much about targeting multiple um, tumor antigens in perhaps generation platforms to include, you know, tri-specifics and so forth. Any comments on kind of how the field is moving in that direction? That's a good question. You know, I think the first, you know, we actually have talked about sort of non- T-cell engagers here. Um, and I think one of the first places where bispecifics were going was two antigens, the, the MET-EGFR um, approach, which, you know, targeting both these. I think that's an important thing because, you know, that goes back to one of the earlier questions is how do, we're all working on the targets, the distribution, um, you know, for the pro-drug, do you go for the Goldilocks situation where everything's just right? Uh, and I think that's something we have to look at. You know, it's the complexity of trying the, the two molecular entities, but also going at two tumor targets, go at EGFR, 
plus something else, you know, so that if you have that right place, that that's where you will get the T cell activation only. So if you're, if you have that broad distribution, I think the field needs to go there, but I think we're all sort of kind of holding our breath on the first, you know, MUX 16, Gucci 2C, all, the, all these first real the PSMA for solid tumors and the evidence that you get a little bit of activity would be pushing us down the road. We know you can get the T cells in there. The impacts, you know, with the GP100, you see it going in. We can get activity, uh, but we have to have the um, confidence to keep trying and learn from each time we do this to best approach for each tumor type that we're going forward with. Do you have any concerns with the engineering of these antibodies that the chances of anti-drug antibodies are really high and as a result, again, hitting to the right putic dose becomes a challenge? I think we're all immunologists, so we better be. <laughs> and so when you now think of... Uh, adding an anti-CD28 directed co-stimulatory antibody to, um, would that worsen it? How do you, how do you, what is the hypothesis, what is your um, crystal balling here? I don't think I have a crystal ball. The experiment is done in humans, and we expect, you know, we, we have to wait to get it. But I think situations like the CD3, CD20 antibodies, you know, the, People are talking about the CRS. People are talking about adding Rizumab, for instance, you know, under CD20 to block that. So I think we can, or on the L6. But so, so I think as a community, a scientific community, in terms of clinicians and scientists together, I think we're trying to undertake an approach of how we can limit the you know, side effects. I don't think I have a crystal ball, and I don't think any of my colleagues has one. But I think you know, that's why we're going cautiously and evaluating step-by-step step in the dose escalation, I think, is critical to evaluate with the proper, implementing the proper readout, um, you know, to be able to evaluate the immune response that you're getting. It sounds like as, by the time we figure this out, the cost of our combination basics will be the same as CAR-T's. <laughs> Any questions? Anything that I missed? I think we have one question over there. Oh. You've talked a lot about um, T cells. Uh, do you have thoughts, or are you looking into NK cells as well? Well, I can't speak, you know, for the full thing, but I know there is, you know, if fate brings it up, uh, it's an interesting approach with the NK cells, and I think there are a bunch of companies that are looking at using the FC, you know, as sort of the natural way to attack, you know, take the NK cells that are, would be at IFC domains and bring that for tumor targets. And I think that's a really interesting approach to bring things forward, either by some mix of an off-the-shelf, I mean, talking about cost of goods here, if you have the off-the-shelf NK cell that can activate, and I know there's an, forget the company that has a special binding domain so that you can just link it to NK cells uh, that are ready to go. And, you know, swap in and out your target of choice for the day. That's where we can gain some better broad activity against different tumors. Maybe just to add to that, I mean, of, of course, the, some of the emulators that uh, we are developing, for example, for 1BB agonists also stimulate NK cells. Um, IL-2, different from IL-2, they also stimulate NK cells. And those can be combined then with... Um, 
NK cell redirection approaches, like by specifics, for example, to CD16 or to different NK cytotoxic receptors, or even standard IgG1s, particularly if they are FC engineered to bind into CD16, is a kind of bispecific in a way. All right, I'm really looking forward to the next generation of souped up combination studies. All the best to all of you, and uh, looking forward to some data readouts over the coming years. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the IO360 2020 conference. The next IO360 meeting will take place virtually February 23rd through 26, 2021. For more information, visit www.io360summit.com.